Music marks the times of our lives, reminds us of days gone by, and inspires today's and tomorrow's hits. Hi, I'm Dee Dwayne, and welcome to The Real Deal, spotlighting the best music and the biggest artists of yesterday, providing an insight of just what made them so great. Let me just mention a few nicknames to you, okay? And I'm sure you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. What about if I said to you, the King of Soul, Mr. Dynamite, Mr. Please, 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 Soul Brother Number One, the hardest working man in show business, and the Godfather of Soul. Yeah, I'm talking about the one man who not only took popular music to an entirely new direction, but at the same time, created, pioneered, and embellished the musical genre known as funk. In a career that has spanned six decades, James Brown has influenced the development of several music genres, including rap and hip-hop. By the time he was in his 30s, James Brown was more than a dominant musical voice. He was an outstanding dynamic community leader and celebrity personality. He was important enough to be drawn into the murky waters of national politics, investigated and harassed by the FBI, an inspiration and role model, he was also feared and sometimes ridiculed. He was a force that just could not be denied. On James Brown's 1963 landmark Live at the Apollo album, Fats Gunder did this introduction. So now listen, gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? Thank you and thank you very kindly. It is indeed a great pleasure to present to you at this particular time, national and international known as the hardest working man in show business. Man, they're saying I'll go crazy. Try me. You've got the power. Think. If you want me, I don't mind. Bewildered. Million dollar seller lost someone. The very latest release, Night Train. Let's everybody shout and shimmy. Mr. Dynamite, the amazing Mr. Please Please himself, the star of the show, James Brown and the Famous Flame. Joseph Brown was born on May 3, 1933 in Barnwell, South Carolina to 16-year-old Susie Bailing and 22-year-old Joseph Joe Gardner Brown. He was born in a small wooden shack. James Brown's name was supposed to have been Joseph Brown Jr. However, his first and middle names were mistakenly reversed on his birth certificate. James later legally changed his name to remove the junior designation. The Brown family lived in extreme poverty in Elko, South Carolina, which was an impoverished town at the time. They moved to Augusta, Georgia when James Brown was just four or five. James Brown's family first settled at one of his aunt's brothels and later moved into a house shared with another aunt. James Brown's mother left the family after a contentious marriage and moved to New York. James spent long stretches of time on his own, hanging out in the streets and hustling to get by. He managed to stay in school until the sixth grade. Here's James Brown as he discusses his beginning and the definition of black power. I guess you know I started as a shoeshine boy in Augusta, Georgia. I didn't get a chance to finish the seventh grade. But I made it. I made it because you believed in me, because I had honesty and dignity and sincere, and I wanted to be somebody. 
This is the reason why today I talk to the kids. Tell them to stay in school and don't be a dropout. Because if I hadn't looked up and through the goodwill and the sympathy of people, I wouldn't be here. Our education is the answer. Know what you're talking about. Be qualified. Be ready. Then you don't have a problem. Be ready. Know what you're doing. You know, in Augusta, Georgia, I used to shine shoes on the steps of radio station WRDW. I think we started three cents, and we went to five and six. Never did get to a dime. But today, I own that radio station. You know what that is? That's black power. Right here. It's not in violence. It's in knowing what you're talking about. Being ready. Now, I say it to you because I'm your brother. I know where it's at. I've been there. I'm not using from imagination. I'm going, I'm talking from experience. Let's live for our country. Let's live for ourselves. Music was always an emotional charge for the young James Brown. Raised in a brothel in Augusta, Georgia, James Brown never knew his parents' love or guidance. His main concern was hustling. His main outlet was sports. He loved music, gospel when he attended church, big band swing and early R&B that he heard on the radio and on jukeboxes. Louis Jordan and his Timpani 5 was a special inspiration for James. In 1946, all of 13 years old, James Brown tried his first musical venture with a group called the Cremona Trio a small money-making sideline kind of thing, and his career halted temporarily as he was imprisoned for petty theft in 1949. Paroled in Toccoa, Georgia in 1952, under the sponsorship of group member Bobby Bird's family, James started to make music his principal motive. Initially, he sang gospel with Sarah Bird and the church club, then joined her brother Bobby Bird's locally established group known as the Gospel Starlighters or the Avons, depending on where and what they performed. Influenced by R&B groups such as Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, the Orioles, and Billy Ward and his Dominoes, the group changed its name, first to the Tacoa Band and then to the Flames. The group gained a reputation for being a dynamic live act and they renamed themselves the Famous Flames, even though at this time they were far from being famous. By 1955, the group had contacted Little Richard who James Brown idolized. Little Richard convinced the group to get in contact with his manager at the time, Clint Brantley. Brantley agreed to manage them after seeing the group audition. Brantley then sent them to a local radio station to record a demo where they performed their first composition called Please, Please, Please. The song was inspired when Little Richard wrote the words of the title on a napkin and James was determined to make a song out of it. The Famous Flames eventually signed with King Records in Cincinnati, Ohio and issued a re-recorded version of Please, Please, Please in March of 1956. When King President Sid Nathan heard the song, he hated it and he thought it was garbage. Well, the song became the group's first R&B hit and one of James Brown's signature songs selling close to 3 million copies. Please, 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 please.
Angry Birds stated that the dancing that James did later on in his career ain't nothing compared to what he used to do back then. James could stand flat-footed and flip over into a split. He tumbled too, over and over like in gymnastics. He said he asked James, What's wrong with you, man? <laughs> well, when Little Richard hit it big with Tutti Frutti in 1955, Brantley had the famous flames fulfill Little Richard's concert performances. This is when James Brown saw his moment. I've never seen a man work so hard in my whole life, Bobby Bird recalled. He'd go from what we rehearsed and leap off into something else. It was hard to keep up with him. He was all the time driving, driving, and driving. This is when he really started hollering and screaming and increasing his dance moves. He felt he just had to outdo Little Richard. The fans started out screaming, We want Richard! We want Richard! But by the end of the show, they were screaming for James Brown. James Brown's charisma and vision allowed him to emerge as the group's leader. Now you gotta remember that this was Bobby Bird's group. It was Bobby Bird who discovered James Brown, not the opposite as most people thought. Bobby Bird helped to inspire the musical aspirations of James Brown and took a back seat to James Brown's direction. Influenced by Little Richard and professional wrestler Gorgeous George, who both wore capes, James Brown began wearing capes in his performances. In the remaining 40 years of his life, his MC, Danny Ray, would drape the cape on him and assist him offstage until he returned to the stage again to continue the show. The false endings to the performance created much excitement and would remain a trademark throughout his career. By 1958, James Brown's career was faltering after disputes over royalties, songwriting credit, and the indignity of having been relegated to backup singers on the billing of Please, 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 most of the original Famous Flames quit the group. James Brown continued to perform with a backing band and a new Flames lineup consisting of members from Little Richard's group. Released in October 1958, Try Me became their first song to crack the R&B charts in three years and their first ever to make the Hot 100 peaking at number five. The song peaked at number one on the R&B chart in February of 1959. The song sold over a million copies and saved the famous Flames from having their contract dropped due to a lack of hits. The song also gave James Brown additional confidence in his own abilities as a musician and gave him the necessary tools to build his career. Try me.
James was known for taking chances and for thinking outside of the box. On October 24, 1962, James Brown financed a live recording of a performance at the Apollo and convinced Sid Nathan, who refused to invest, to release the album despite Nathan's belief that no one bought live albums. He was sure that live albums were a waste of time and money and that they would never sell. Well, Live at the Apollo was released the following June and became an immediate hit, eventually reaching number two on the top LPs chart and selling over a million copies, staying on the charts for 14 months. Wow. In 1963, James Brown launched his first record label, Try Me Records, which included the recordings of the likes of Tammy Montgomery, who was later to be known as Tammy Terrell. James continued to experiment with new sounds, approaches, and even new musicians to develop a sound that was soulful, but yet crossover friendly at the same time. Now this, ladies and gentlemen, was the beginning of funk music, James Brown style. Papa's Got a Brand New Bag is considered to be a key element in the emergence of funk music as a distinct style. Both the singer and the musicians would place an overwhelming emphasis on the first beat of each measure, or as James would say, on the one. Papa's Got a Brand New Bag was a number one R&B hit, topping the charts for eight weeks. It also won James Brown his first Grammy Award for Best Rhythm and Blues Recording. were preparing their British invasion of the United States, James Brown was geared up and prepared to invade Europe. His reception overseas was surprising and overwhelming. In March of 1966, the James Brown caravan crossed the Atlantic for appearances in London and Paris for the first time. On the 11th, they appeared live in an entire episode of Ready Steady Go, which was then Britain's hippest TV show. At the theater gigs, audience pandemonium was rampant and almost uncontrollable. Since then, the European fans have always provided James Brown a second home across the water. James Brown was big and getting bigger. His music wasn't yet full-blown funk, but it was James Brown. Unmistakably different from Motown, Stax, and Atlantic Records, James had a lot to feel good about. And speaking of feeling good, I Got You, I Feel Good was recorded and released as a single in 1965. It was his highest charting song and is arguably one of his most widely recognized recordings. James Brown's screams at the beginning and at the end of the song have been sampled a number of times for hip-hop and dance songs. The song has been covered many times by other performers and is frequently played at sporting events. I Got You, I Feel Good has appeared in numerous film soundtracks including The Nutty Professor, Good Morning Vietnam, Home Alone 4, and Dr. Doolittle, just to name a few. Kind of makes you want to scream, huh, James? Whoa! I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. I feel good. 
Anybody like James Brown. Yeah, things were good for James Brown at this time in his career. In fact, he rewarded himself by purchasing the 1965 Learjet 23, making him the first African American to own a private jet. James Brown's musical arrangement and production skills continued to flourish when his co-writer and one-time girlfriend, Betty Jean Newsom, wrote the lyrics to a song based on her observations of relationships between men and women. It's a Man's Man's World was recorded quickly only in two takes with a studio ensemble that included members of James Brown's touring band and a string section arranged and conducted by Sammy Lowe. In later years, Betty Jean Newsom would claim that James didn't write any part of the song and she argued in court that he sometimes forgot to pay her her royalties. Yeah. <laughs> 
boys Man make them happy Cause man make them toys And after man make everything Everything he can You know that man makes money To buy from other men Dwayne, and you're listening to The Real Deal as we present the music and the life of James Brown. Okay, let's see just how much you really know about the godfather of soul, James Brown. Here are five things that you, as well as I, probably didn't even know about James. Number one, James was abandoned by his parents at a young age, and he managed to stay in school all the way up to the seventh grade. Number two, he originally wanted to be a baseball player and had a brief boxing career as a teenager. Number three, James Brown at one time was a cotton picker, a janitor, and a shoeshine boy. He also danced and sang to attract clients to his aunt's place of business, a brothel. Number four, he was so musically talented and had a great ear for music and timing, but James Brown didn't know how to read or write sheet music. Number five, James Brown single-handedly kept the city of Boston peaceful the day after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. James just happened to be in town as he was scheduled to perform at the Boston Garden the following day. Without his appearance and performance and urging the crowd to stay peaceful, there probably would have been a major riot in Boston that day. Okay, now here comes one of the most important songs ever recorded in popular music history. Not only for James Brown, but for every musical genre, past and present. This song has been cited as the first true original funk song. Written by James Brown and band leader Alfred Pee Wee Ellis, here is the story about how the song Cold Sweat was created, as recalled by Pee Wee Ellis. Pee Wee said that after one of the shows, One Night Somewhere, James Brown called him into the dressing room and grunted a bass line of a rhythmic thing. <laughs> which turned out to be the baseline for Cold Sweat. Pee Wee said, I was very much influenced by Miles Davis and had been listening to So What six or seven years earlier and that crept into the making of Cold Sweat. You could call it subliminal, but the horn line is based on Miles Davis's So What. He said he wrote the song on the bus between New York and Cincinnati. The next day we pulled up in front of King Records studio, got off the bus, got into the studio, set up, and he practiced the rhythm of the song with the band. By the time they got the groove going, James Brown showed up and added a few touches, changed the guitar part here and there, made it real funky, and had the drummer do something different. He was a genius at it, Pee Wee said. Between the two of us, we put that song together in one afternoon. James put the lyrics on it, the band set up in a semicircle in the studio with one microphone. The song was recorded live in the studio, all in one take. It was like a performance. Here's bass player Boosie Collins describing how James Brown taught him the power of the one. We hadn't practiced, so we didn't really have a clue of how the show was going to go down and how he was going to call the songs. You know, you just in a mode like, okay, whatever he says, I just got to be on it. You know, cold sweat. Uh, and it, and it, give me that one. Because uh, he kept saying, give me that one. Boosie, give me that one. Whatever you do. Don't matter. Just make sure you give me that one. You can play all that. Any and everything you come up with, play it. But give me that one. Uh. I said, oh, you mean like that. Yeah, that's it, son. I'm glad I thought of it. And um, that very same one is the one that, you know, I took over to um, Parliament Funkadelic. But James Brown was the one that came up with the one. 
By this time, James Brown's vocals frequently took the form of a kind of rhythmic declamation, not quite sung, but not quite spoken, that only sometimes featured traces of pitch or melody. This would become a major influence on the techniques of rap and hip hop, which would come into maturity in the coming decades way before its time. James Brown's style of funk in the late 1960s was based on syncopated funky bass lines, drum patterns, and guitar riffs. It was around this time that his popularity increased and he acquired the nickname Soul Brother No. 1. James Brown's recordings during this period influenced musicians across the industry, most notably groups such as Sly and the Family Stone, Funkadelic, the Isley Brothers, and many others as well as vocalists such as Wilson Pickett, David Ruffin and Dennis Edwards from The Temptations, Prince and Michael Jackson who throughout his career cited James Brown as his ultimate idol. In 1968, he recorded a number of funk-oriented tracks with the Daps, a white Cincinnati band, including the hit I Can't Stand Myself. The single rose to number four on the R&B chart and number 28 on the pop chart. My name is Dee Dwayne, and you're listening to The Real Deal right here on TheHot12.com. Today, the line, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, may seem like a relatively straightforward message, but together these eight words conveyed a new self-confidence and assertiveness among the black community in 1968 America. James Brown tells the children to say it loud, that they're proud of being black. This is not a message to be whispered, but to be proclaimed with confidence. During this period in his career, 
Mr. Brown began wearing a big afro instead of his more famously chemically straightened hairdo. The afro represented a growing pride among blacks in the late 60s and embraced their African heritage. Many African American leaders stated at that time, black is beautiful. James Brown explained that I can clearly remember when we were calling ourselves colored and after that song, we were calling ourselves black. The song showed that lyrics and music and a song can change society. The use of the word black rather than Negro or colored represented a change in consciousness. Oddly enough, however, the actual kids shouting I'm black and I'm proud on the song were white and Asian. While recording the song in Los Angeles, James Brown found a group of school children hanging outside the recording studio and decided to use their vocals in the chorus. James Brown's powerful vocal delivery made it possible for all people of all backgrounds to shout, I'm black and I'm proud. career, James Brown recorded 16 singles that peaked at number one on the R&B charts, and he holds the record for the most singles listed on the Hot 100 chart, which did not reach number one. Hmm. Sex Machine was one of the songs that James Brown recorded with his new band, the JBs, and it plays to their distinctive strengths. In comparison with his 1960s solo funk hits, such as Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, the band's inexperienced horn section plays a relatively minor part. Instead, the song centers on the insistent riff played by brothers Bootsy and Catfish Collins on bass and guitar and Jabo Starks on drums, along with the call and response of James Brown and Bobby Bird, who remained his best friend and partner for over 21 years. Count it off, James. One, two, three, four. Get up, get on up. Get up, get on up. Stay on the scene. Get on up like a sex machine. Get on up. Get on up, stay on the scene Get on up, like a sex machine Get on 
Payback was released from his 1973 album of the same name. The song's lyrics were originally written by trombonist and band leader Fred Wesley, but heavily rewritten by James Brown himself soon before it was recorded. It was the first in an unbroken succession of three hit singles by James to reach number one on the R&B charts that year. Now these were the last number one hits of James Brown's career. 
It was his second and final single to be certified gold. Payback has been sampled by many artists, including numerous hip-hop and R&B producers. The group In Vogue recorded two different R&B hits, Hold On and My Lovin' You're Never Gonna Get It, that were both based on loops from the song's rhythm track. LL Cool J sampled Payback for his 1990 song, The Booming System. Mary J. Blige sampled the song for her 1997 hit, Everything. And the group Total sampled the song for their 1995 hit, Can't You See. This is one of many James Brown songs that have helped build the hip-hop genre, leading the Rolling Stone magazine to cite James Brown as the most sampled artist of all time. Released in 1974, here comes James Brown's final number one R&B hit. It also peaked at number 31 on the Hot 100. Papa Don't Take No Mess was originally recorded for the soundtrack to the film Hell Up in Harlem. The full-length version, nearly 14 minutes long, appeared on his double album titled Hell.
Never before or since has there ever been an artist like James Brown. To say he was way ahead of his time is an understatement. He was still born as a baby, and the first sound that he made when he was revived by his aunt was a loud scream. He was a singer, a songwriter, a record producer, dancer, and band leader. The founding father of funk music and a major figure of 20th century popular music and dance. His career spanned six decades and he influenced the development of several music genres. James Brown's main social activism was in preserving the need for education for young school age kids. Due to heavy dropout rates in the 1960s, James released a pro-education song, Don't Be a Dropout. Royalties of the song were donated to a charity used for dropout prevention programs. After the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee, James Brown provided a free citywide concert in Boston to maintain public order. Even though the police chief objected to the concert, he wanted to call it off. He thought that it would incite more violence. James Brown made public speeches in schools and continued to advocate the importance of education in school. Upon the filing of his will in 2002, James Brown advised that most of the money in his estate go into creating the I Feel Good Incorporated Trust to benefit disadvantaged children and provide scholarships for his grandchildren. A week before his death, while looking gravely ill, James Brown gave out toys and turkeys to kids at an orphanage in Atlanta, something that he had done several times over the years. During his long career, James Brown received several prestigious music industry awards and honors. In 1983, he was inducted into the Georgia Music Hall of Fame. He was named as one of the first inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at his inaugural induction dinner in New York in January of 1986. On February 25, 1992, James Brown was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 34th Annual Grammy Awards. Exactly a year later, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 4th Annual Rhythm and Blues Foundation Pioneer Awards. A ceremony held for James Brown on January 10, 1997, honored him with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In June of 2000, he was honored as an inductee for the New York Songwriters Hall of Fame. James Brown was honored as the first BMI Urban Icon at the BMI Urban Awards. His BMI accolades include an impressive 10 R&B awards and 6 pop awards. On November 14, 2006, James Brown was inducted into the United Kingdom's Music Hall of Fame. He was one of the several inductees who also performed at that ceremony. In recognition of his accomplishments as an entertainer, he was a recipient of the Kennedy Center Honors on December 7, 2003. Mr. Brown was also honored in his hometown of Augusta, Georgia for his philanthropy and civic activities. On November 20, 1993, Mayor Charles Devaney of Augusta held a ceremony to dedicate the section of 9th Street and Broad Streets renamed James Brown Boulevard. On May 6, 2005, as a 72nd birthday present to James Brown, the city of Augusta unveiled a life-size bronze James Brown statue on Broad Street. The James Brown movie, Get On Up, was met with positive reviews from critics with praise mainly going to Chaswick Bozeman's performance. The general consensus read, with an unforgettable Chaswick Bozeman in a starring role, Get On Up offers the Godfather of Soul a fitting and dynamic homage. Co-produced by Mick Jagger, the film grossed over $13 million during its opening weekend. Here's Mick Jagger discussing how he was influenced and taught by Little Richard and James Brown. To me, well, I was, a, you know, I, I sort of put it in the past, but I mean, I am a big fan of James Brown and I still listen to James Brown, even though I've spent about 18 months on it. Um, I mean, I was a huge fan when I first, well, first of all, we had the, this record of uh, James Brown live at the Apollo. That was the, I mean, I'd heard other things first, but that was the one that sort of kicked it off and everybody had that. It was a huge number one record in America. But it was very popular uh, in England and, you know, all, me and all my friends, we played it to death. And so, that, so I knew what I'm coming to is, but, but you knew the stage show. That was the stage show, you know what I'm saying? So, so you knew the station. So when I went to see him first in 1964, he was basically still doing that show, but you knew it already so well. And it was amazing to see, because you'd imagined it in your mind, how it was going to be. And there it was. And it was just um, great. And so I, you know, I had never seen him on stage. And you know, he was an electrifying stage performer. And I'd worked with Little Richard, which, which is obviously part of this story, which I didn't really know at the time. 
So, because Little Richard come from the same place. And I'd worked with Little Richard, I'd done a long tour with Little Richard, and Little Richard had taught me incredible amount of things. And um, he was very generous uh, with his, you know, comments and notes and, you know, what you have to do with an audience and everything. And, and, um, and he was like James Brown. They were both similar in the fact that they, that they really communicated with an audience. A lot of people we, in this time, you know, they didn't really know how to communicate with audiences. He was a kind of, like, good guy to be thinking, well, this is a good sort of role model for your, for your stage performing. I don't just mean in the moves, but... Yeah, the moves are great, but but the energy levels and the and the way that he did the dynamics, you know, uh, of the show, because it's not all up. James Brown passed away on Christmas morning, December 25th, 2006, at the age of 73. He made 316 albums in his career and has sold more than 85 million records worldwide. He once talked about what he tried to do to help young people. He said he tried to teach them through his music. He thought it was very important to make young people proud of themselves and willing to work for what they wanted. He said life is really hard sometimes, but you can make it a lot better if you try and prepare for it. James Brown saw himself as an example of the American dream, going from extreme poverty to at one time becoming the most successful black businessman in America. To him, that meant that a person can do anything that they want and have anything they want if they're willing to work hard. Just open up the door and I'll get it myself. My name is Dee Dwayne. Thank you for listening to The Real Deal. The Real Deal is produced by Melody Productions and we welcome your comments and ideas for future shows. We'd love to hear from you. So click that contact us button on this website and drop us a line. Always keep it real and thanks again for listening to The Real Deal.